Hey everyone, this is Carter and welcome to this episode of Making It Up, the conversation series where I get to sit down and chat with other writers. And uh, and as you know, there is a soft spot in my heart for debut authors. In fact, I'm starting to do more work with the debut authors uh, who are members of ITW, the International Thriller Writers, because I just have such a a reflection of gratitude. I was a debut author um, about all the support I got. And and there's just, there's kind of nothing like it. <laughs> when you see your, your book in print for the first time, your very first book in print for the first time, and to realize like you've manifested this dream that um, regardless of the size of, of the publishing house you're with, you've manifested this dream that very few writers get to realize and to be able to do that, you know, is, is is something I remember very fondly. And so I've always I've always had a soft spot for um for debut authors. And so I was very pleased today to talk to a fantastic um debut author, at least debut in terms of fiction. Uh, today I spoke to Edward Cahill. So Edward um uh is is comes from the world of academia. Um, and has written academic texts before. And as he describes in our conversation, he kind of had this seminal moment where he was researching something and there were so, and he was so interested in, there was so much information to convey that he had, had, had the epiphany of like, yeah, I can only really, I think, do this through fiction um, because I want a broader audience because this is such an important topic. And so, um, so that's what he set out to do. So, uh, the you know, a four year process of writing the novel, two year process of, of, or a year long to get an agent, then two years to sell it, um, which is very common. Um, and, and as I noted in our conversation, the only uncommon thing was he actually, um, sold the book. <laughs> Usually that all, all ends with just rejections and you're on to your second novel. But in this case, um, it's sold and the name of the novel is Disorderly Men. And it just came out in early September, um, so it's 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 a recent release as of the time of this recording. And it was just it was fantastic to talk to him to hear his perspectives on approaching what he wanted to write from a from a fiction angle, from a literary fiction angle, and then also the trials and tribulations of trying to sell something that's um, um, you know in his terms a relatively niche. Um, kind of topic or or a niche audience, um, you know, it's 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 actually number one <laughs> new release in, on Amazon in gay studies right now, which is phenomenal. But also just him realizing, like, you know, this is a story. I don't know how big of an audience the story is going to have, and going through the edit, editorial rejection process of getting tremendously positive feedback on all aspects, but ultimately culminating with. With that, with that phrase, it's just not right for us at this time, um, which is always, which is always disheartening. But the book found a home, just came out, and obviously it's doing great. So I think, you know, as I as I look back on our conversation, there are a lot of uh, gold nuggets in this conversation from him um, for aspiring writers about kind of his process and what worked for him, and um, especially how he approached editing. So. A lot of good stuff in this one. Very entertaining person. I really enjoyed my conversation. This is me talking to Edward Hale.
Hey, Carter, how are you doing? Good. How are you, buddy? Well, pretty well. Thank you. Oh, good. Good. Well, uh, well, let's just get this out of the way. Congratulations on your debut release, which was what, uh, a few weeks ago, right? Uh, yeah, September 5th was the pub day and uh, just finished reading in New York, San Francisco and L.A. and uh, really happy with uh, with the result. Wow. So you've been touring on it already. Yeah. Yeah. That's a brief one, a brief one, but a fun one. That's awesome. So how does the, uh, you know, everyone, I think every author, uh, you know, obviously dreams of having a novel published and few, <laughs> unfortunately, few ever realize that dream. But when you, when you start down that publication road and you know, it's a real thing, you have, I think you have expectations, you have thoughts. How does it feel relative to what you'd been expecting perhaps? Well, you know, uh, we all expect to win the National Book Award. Um, <laughs> I never did. <laughs> one person gets to win that every year. Uh, uh, but it's been great. And, you know, the one of the most extraordinary things, and I think any artist experiences this, is for the first time when someone you don't know, when someone you've never heard of who's not connected to you in any way says, I read your book and it meant so much to me. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's an audience. And that's, that's ultimately what a writer wants um, is an audience. Uh, you know, you know, your your dad's gonna say he loves the book, but when a stranger loves the book, that's something special. Totally. Like my my favorite is uh, when a stranger tells me that um, I caused them to lose sleep because they were too scared. I'm like, oh, it's just, it warms my heart. <laughs> yeah. Or or they stayed up all night long because they couldn't stop turning the pages. Right. Right. Also warms my heart. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And I I pulled up the book on. Um, your book on Amazon today, and it was a number one uh, new release in gay studies, and that's that's phenomenal, man. That's that's awesome. quite an accomplishment. So, okay, so congratulations. Thank you. Thank um, so, where are you? Where are you? Where do you live? Uh, I'm in my apartment um, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in New York City. Okay, you are nestled into uh, Manhattan. Have you have you been there for a while? Have you lived there for some time? Almost thirty years. Oh, wow! It's about the same time I've lived in. Uh, Colorado, which are two uh, very different locations. Yeah, um, I, I was born in San Francisco, uh, where I just read, and I came here for grad school uh, at Rutgers, and uh, just decided New York City was going to be my home. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's so you born and raised in San Francisco. Well, born in San Francisco, raised in and around California. Yeah, uh, lived pretty much, pretty much everywhere in California, uh, but uh, left in '93. And okay. So not not actually not too dissimilar to me. I grew up uh, in Los Angeles, and I left in '88 to go to New York for school, and 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 never returned. Although I li I did live in San Francisco for a few years, and that's you know that that's a hard city to leave, except for the uh, <laughs> the cost of it, which you're no stranger to in New York, obviously. It got, it got a lot more expensive after I left. Yeah, yeah. I remember I lived. Um, it was my first job. Uh, or my second job, I guess, out of school, and I was living in the Tenderloin, and they had just it was just kind of starting to gentrify, um, but it was it was all I could afford, and it was it was fine, it was vibrant, um, but uh, that was my my real urban living experience, uh, and that's actually when I got into reading <laughs> because I didn't have any friends, <laughs> so I, I discovered books. Yeah, a lot of a lot of bookstores. Uh, at least there used to be a lot of bookstores. Yeah, uh, and a, a lot of readers. Yep, yep. Uh, well, very well, well educated city, obviously. So, um, so you're growing up 
in in California, and you have siblings. Uh, had two siblings, no longer with us. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, and I was not much of a reader. In fact, uh, I was a bad student. Mm-hmm. Didn't go to class. Um, uh, it was really only in my early twenties that I discovered books. Um, and got it yeah. and uh, heard about this thing called uh, grad school and academia, uh, where they pay you to read books. And I thought that's a great idea. So uh, I, I root, uh, got really lucky and, um, and then found myself kind of returning to this long standing desire to write fiction, which I'd, I'd always been too afraid to do when I was younger. And I tried a little bit, you know, I, I sent my first stories to the Atlantic and the New Yorker and, you know, surprise, surprise, they were rejected. Um, that's a bold first step. Yeah, it's a bold first step. Uh, I, was, I was working on my, my second um, scholarly book, sitting in the New York Public Library about seven years ago, and something told me that I needed to take a different direction. So I put all my research aside, and I started a novel. Okay. So, all right. So I want to back up just for a second. So what, what was your undergraduate studies? Uh, I have a bachelor's of science in business administration because uh, it was uh, what all my fraternity brothers were doing. Yeah. And uh, it seemed like the easiest course. Um, and I didn't find it in any way interesting. Huh. So, yeah, another parallel. I, I, I went to hotel school, uh, which was essentially, I mean, I studied hotel real estate finance and I was a hotel consultant for years and years and years um, before. Kind of like you, just like, I'm going to write a book and see what that feels like. <laughs> Uh, which is, which is, you know, kind of an ill-advised move, but it's, it's, you know, I contend that if you're a writer at heart, you know, it will, it'll come out of you kicking and screaming <laughs> despite your best efforts to suppress it. Um, but you, you know, after your graduate work, you were writing scholarly texts. Um, so yeah. you, you had the chops to write, although that's a different, obviously that's a different kind of writing. Right. I mean, you know, one thing that makes it possible to write a novel is if you've already written a book, if you've already managed a really big project with a million moving parts. Uh, and the PhD dissertation that became my, uh, you know, my uh, my first book uh, was a, a history of uh, uh, early U.S. literature um, and aesthetics and politics. Very specialized study. Uh, I'm sure no more than 25 people ever read it. Um, I'm really proud of it. It was really fascinating stuff. Um, but it involved just being in control of so many different pieces of a puzzle. Uh, and writing a novel requires that same amount of c- control of, of just, just a sort of an inundation of, 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 of facts, of personalities, of ideas. And when you're writing at your best, you have to have all of those pieces in your mind at once, right? You have to have access to them if you want to write the best sentence, if you want to give you know give the the deepest character you have to have them all there and i think think writing a book a scholarly book even though it was a very different kind of writing very different kinds of sentences really taught me how to do that yeah i think it's important to have so the actual act of writing of of writing sentences that are <laughs> coherent and propulsive you know that that just takes practice over time so you have to have practice at 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 making an argument almost um, some kind of written form, but I think, so I don't outline. So to me, it's like, what's so great about a novel as opposed to maybe an academic text is who knows where it's going to go? <laughs> who knows? There's an infinite amount of possibilities that where these characters can go. If you don't have that idea already set in your head. And that's to me, the joy of, for me, the joy of writing, but I'm curious to know. So you, 
you you know, I think everybody has that day, right? There's 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 something, there's some kind of catalyst. And for you, you're sitting in the New York Public Library. Obviously, it's a it's a tremendous atmosphere um to to have that sudden thought that you should write a novel, but that thought had already been there, probably buried. <laughs> what was it that like it was it just the desire to flesh out character to or was it just I have an idea that I think is so strong that I can't ignore it? Well, um my partner at the time um was a fiction writer and a screenwriter and we'd written a couple of screenplays together. Oh. Um sold a couple of options. Oh uh, that's fantastic. That, that had kind of motivated me to to be thinking creatively, but you know, only as a sideline. And I, I think I think the moment was was um at some point I was I, I was moving from chapter three of this new book to chapter four, which involved just burying myself in, you know, probably 150, uh, you know, uh, historical books um, and just so much work. And, and it just began to, to, to kind of click that this was going to be so much work. And all it was really interesting was uh, it was a cultural history of uh, social mobility and the early modern Atlantic world. Really, really fascinating stuff. But I thought, you know, at the very best, I'm going to get 100 readers. And I want more than that. And, and, and I, you know, I want more people engaging with my ideas. And so I'd had an idea for a screenplay. Um, uh, my partner and I kicked it around for a while. He wasn't that interested in it. Um, but it suddenly occurred to me this might be a novel. Mm -hmm. um, so I wrote three chapters with the promise that if they felt good and if it was a fun process, then they would, I, would, you know, I would turn those three chapters into 30. So... When you're writing, I'm curious to know when you're kind of writing those screenplays with your partner, you know, first of all, that's, it's a challenge to co-write anything, I think. Um, and you really have to mesh, but did you feel, because that, and you know, there you're really learning to write dialogue more than anything else. Are you feeling at that time, you're like, oh, I'm, I've got a, I've, I've got a pulse on dialogue. I didn't realize that. Or was there a competition almost of like when you're co-writing those things? Well, we had very different skill sets. Um, I brought a lot of precision, um, and he brought a lot of originality. Okay. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, when I first started writing fiction, you know, I, I realized that writing a beautiful sentence does not make you a fiction writer. You need to be a storyteller. Right. Um, and, uh, and I was great for beautiful sentences, but I had to teach myself how to write right. a real story. And I think, I think screenwriting did that because you've got, you've got essentially 100 pages to tell that story, right? Uh, you know, those scenes have to work so efficiently because nobody wants to stare at nothing, right? It's got to be moving constantly. And I think, you know, it's not really that different from, from fiction. You can have your moments where you slow down the pace, but you've got to write with real compression and get as much meaning out of every sentence as you can. Right. The, 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 being a writer isn't writing a beautiful sentence. Being a writer is deciding if you should keep that sentence or not. And having having the the, the humility to to cut it uh even if it's the most beautiful thing you've ever written i you know my <laughs> the the floor is littered <laughs> with darlings that i've killed um and you and it's and it kind of feels good over time when you're just like i'm chipping away and now my my manuscript i think is much better paced and, it, and again it depends on what you're writing um in the thriller community obviously you know you don't want the readers to catch their breath a whole lot um but it's also important to know when it's time for that to happen. So I'm curious, you know, you're approaching, you approach a novel with, 
with a very information rich background. And you're, you know, because your original idea was nonfiction. So you're talking about conveying a lot of information about a subject you're passionate about to an audience. And then by turning that to a novel, you kind of have to lose a lot of almost the research ego and know, okay, what what does the audience really want to read about? And, you know, because yeah, you can tell when somebody overwrites research, right? It comes off the page of like, oh, okay, you're just showing off your research. How was that for you? Like, how were you having to make constant decisions about, you know, this thing is really interesting, but it doesn't serve the story, so I can't write about it? Or, Yeah, for me, there would be no greater humiliation than having someone say that he does not wear his research lightly. Um, I was not going to stand for that. Uh, so there was a lot of absorbing and absorbing and internalizing and then ignoring. Yeah. I wanted yeah. to learn this period. It's New York City, winter of 1962. I want to know everything about it. And then I want to forget everything about it so I can just kind of follow my impulses um, and and not really aim for a strict historical verisimilitude, but for a feeling, you know, a right. feeling that feels like 1962. Because, you know, um, I mean, you know, it's really great that, I've, you know, I've heard from a couple of historians that I got it right. Uh, but more importantly is that it doesn't interfere with the pleasure of the story. Right, because historians aren't necessarily your target audience. Um, you know, in, in general, like you're you're never going to there's always going to be somebody like, yeah, no, this, you know, this was the wrong block that this was on, or whatever it is. And you're like, I don't care. I'm I'm shooting for the 70% of you <laughs> who who just absorb the atmosphere as you would. Watching a Batman episode um, of New York in 1962, um, but and then you have to like go ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, th I think that's absolutely true. But on the other hand, I wanted to get my history absolutely perfect, and I almost, I almost made a mistake. And my editor came through and he told me that the subway station in the Bronx that I had named was way too far from Danny's apartment, and he never would have been there. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's right. So I fixed the subway station, and uh, yeah, and I yeah. and I. I hope that was it. I hope I got it right. I mean, that's and that again, that's what editors and copy editors are for. Um, but I, you know, I know a lot of, I have a lot of friends who write and they love. They, you know, the ones who write who who put a lot of research into the books are people who just love to research. They just love it. I, I'm not, I'm not one of those because it feels like homework to me. But um, so you know, that's part of the joy of the writing. But then again, it's figuring out how much to keep in there. Um, and then the other part is, you know, approaching novels. Like, I I have to craft a protagonist who people care about and see the world through this person's eyes, um, even though maybe it's a it's a, it's an unrelatable character or, or it's a time period that I wasn't alive in or whatever. That's that's not easy to do. So you have to kind of distill it to like the human, <laughs> the human essence that everyone can connect to. What were like, how did you find, you know, you wrote those first few chapters. Where were you finding the biggest challenges for yourself? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, for me, reading, reading fiction, it, fi fiction is a pleasure delivery system, a pleasure delivery system. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I want, I wanted to write a book that I wanted to read. I wanted to write a book that was going to just fill my heart with all sorts of feelings. Um, and so, um, you know, I knew I knew that I wanted um, not just one protagonist. I thought this is this is too much of a social phenomenon. Uh, you know, the idea of um, uh, you know gay oppression uh, in the early '60s. Uh, we need to have some different perspectives. Um, so 
the, I mean, you, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I had taught so many novels. I knew what novels were. I knew how novels work. Um, executing them really meant finding a way to to uh, to develop that interiority, to stay really, really close to a character, to know them well enough uh, so that not only would I know what they would say, but I would know what they would do. I know what they wouldn't do. I would know how they would respond uh, in you know this situation or that, which is all really basic to fiction writing, but um, you know, it's the kind of thing, when you write your first novel, you're not just writing a novel, you're teaching yourself how to write a novel. Totally. And, and a huge part of that is figuring out um, what person and what, pe- what tense to use. You know, so when I started writing out, I'm like, well, everyone, you know, it seems to be everyone's writing third person past tense. So I was doing that for a while. Then it, it just kind of, I just started gravitating towards first person present. And that, that's a totally different style. But then you start to reveal like what your kind of what what your strength is. And when you talk about knowing a character and the intimacy, when you hit first person present, yeah, there's no way but being intimate with that person because you are that person in essence as you're writing it. What approach did you use? Yeah, as soon as you decide POV, a lot has been decided for you. Um, and uh, you know, I've I know a lot of writers who start in one POV and then realize it was the wrong choice. They got to back up and start again. Yeah. It, it, right. It depends on what you want to reveal in this character and, and how related are they to the world and, um, and to other characters and how many other POVs do you want to get in there? Um, what kind of a narrator do you want, you know, kind of haunting this story? Do you want them really, you know, really, uh, you know, close to these characters or not? Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of decision making. And I think you have to play around a little bit before you realize what's right. But I think for me, the, the the best thing is just to trust. You just self-trust. You know, yeah. you, you write it, you feel it, and you say, this feels right to me. And the way I keep writing pages every day is that I do, they don't have to be good. That's my yeah. rule. They don't have to be good. Um, and if I kind of take away that sensor that, that, you know, that insists that everything I do be good, that's when the good ideas happen. That's when the writing happens. Right. Um, trust, yeah. Tr- trusting your instinct is 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 critical. And also... Knowing that you could be wrong and accepting that is is important too, because there's a lot of times you don't you don't really know until you start getting feedback. Um, so my my novel that's coming out in April, which is my ninth, I the first time I've done this, I changed it from third person past to first person present, just because I was when I was writing, I'm like I don't know if I can get it in this person's head because they're a 21 year old female savant in 1987, and I was wrong. And so I had to change it all, and but it took other people telling, it took my editor really be like, I can't connect to this person. So it's a huge, huge pain in the ass to do that. But like you have to, right, you have to listen. That's a big move. Yeah, that's a big move. And I, I think that yeah, taking that kind of risk and getting that kind of feedback, right? It's, 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 it's an interesting dialectic between trusting yourself and then deciding how to trust what you hear from other right, people. Right, 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 because. You know, you could be in a critique group with 10 people and over time you realize like, oh, you know what? There's really only two people <laughs> that I trust their feedback. Um, but it, when you're first starting out, like if you start listening to all the input, which is all going to be <laughs> going in different directions, you're going to have a very uh, a flat story at the end of it. So you do have to trust. And so what was you? So you write this novel. And as you're writing it, do you have, do you have 
thought you already have an agent in place? Do you have thoughts about an agent? Or you just let me get this done and then see what happens next. Yeah, it was just, you know, just let me get this done. Um, you know, my partner read every chapter uh, numerous times. Uh, so I, but I that's kept, hard too, you know? I kept getting this confidence that like, oh, this is good. This is good. Is this really good? Is this good? Wow. You know, took me a long time believe to, you know, you know, to believe it. Took me four years to write the book, a year to find an agent, two years to sell the book. Yeah. So it's a long haul. It's a long Yeah, but you that's that is that is you know, that's that's the norm. The only thing that's not normal about your story is that you actually sold the book. Sold the book, yeah. Yeah. Or that you got an agent. So so for example, like I got an agent after 70 rejections with my first novel, but my first three novels didn't sell. And it's just a matter of, okay, I love to storytell and I just want to keep keep at this. So did your agent you know, once your agent accepts you and accepts your book, you know, they're already kind of bought in, but that doesn't mean that they don't have a lot of feedback. Was there, were there rewrites after getting that agent? Um, you know, my agent gave me some really, really good notes, uh, but not a ton. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and my editor gave me some really good notes, but not a ton. And so it really kind of inspired me to, to, to do a, a, an editorial process uh, on my own for about, you know, three, three or so months uh, before I turned in the final manuscript. Uh, and I, 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 you know, moved up into an apartment in the Hudson Valley um, and I just kind of hunkered down and- uh, I just, <laughs> You went real thorough. <laughs> I, tuned, I tuned my brain uh, to, uh, you know, first time I've ever read this thing. And I really just listened to it. I just listened really, really carefully. Uh, and it was a fantastic process. Um, and it gave me a lot of confidence, I think, in my ability to, to edit my own work. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to have, uh, you know, I love getting other people's feedback. But I think uh, it's, it's really important to learn how to, to listen to your own work, to listen to how it sounds when you read it out loud, and to know the difference between a sentence that almost works and a sentence that really sinks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and and it's hard to develop that perspective because you're looking at this in these three months. You're like, well, I've already spent four years writing this and rewriting it so many times. It is easy to kind of second guess yourself. Like, what if I'm making this worse by editing it again? Um, and your brain is in a different you know place now than it was four years ago. So your attitudes towards life. And so you could really... I think it's easy to move the novel away from where you intended it to be simply through your own human development over time. So I think reading that out loud probably makes a big difference. I've never had quite the the patience to do that for a full book of mine, but I've I've heard it's very helpful to do that. It takes it yeah, it, it takes a lot of patience, but I think it's too it's it's really listening to yourself. If you're if you're if you're editing your work and you're panicking a little bit, that's the time to stop and go do something else, right? Mm -hmm. If if you're worried, oh my gosh, this isn't right. Um, I don't know what to do. That's the time to go, you know, uh, go read a book or go take a walk. Yeah. But if you're really listening to yourself and you're, it's like you're just you're you're seeing right through the text. You're seeing exactly what it is and exactly what needs to change. Yeah. And that's that that's a that's a feeling of that's I, to me that's what self trust feels like. It's very very calm and you know exactly what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not always achievable. <laughs> And they always say, you know, the the old axiom obviously is like you know, put your manuscript in your desk drawer for six months. Um, but that's the luxury of people who 
have right. a lot of different projects and are selling those projects all the time. Like for me, I was just like, no, I want to edit it. You know, I finished the first draft and the next day I'm editing that draft. Yeah. Wow. And, and so you do lose a little bit, I, I think, from that. But you also don't really have much of a choice if you're like, I want to get this to my agent or to my editor. Um, so as your shop, as your agent is shopping this manuscript, what was that process like? Was it immediate success? Did it take a while? Yeah, it was, it was two years. Uh, we went to, uh, you know, all players, um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hard time to sell literary fiction. It's just a really, really hard time. So, uh, you know, it, in a lot of ways, it was a really positive experience. It was lots of really wonderful notes. I love the story. I love the characters. Uh, you know, this is a great novel, and I'm sure it's going to land at, at some fine home somewhere. And fortunately, it's not quite mine. And, mm-hmm. and I, I asked my agent, like, what does that mean? Why does everybody love me, but they don't love me enough to marry me? Um, and, and, you know, she said it's a business, and, and they do a calculation. And, um, you know, and that calculation is also a guess, right? They're trying to, to guess um, you know, what, uh, the audio, the book buying audience, uh, of literary fiction, which is pretty specific. Um, you know, um, you know, mine's a gay novel, so it's even more specific mm-hmm. what they're, what they're looking for and what's going to generate income for the corporation that, that, you know, publishes books, which is probably why I, you know, ended up at a, uh, you know, small independent press. Um, it's a, it's a tough, tough thing. And I think it's a miracle. It's a miracle if you can sell a novel. So I, it, 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 I, bro. it absolutely is a miracle. And, you know, the business side of it has always been fascinating to me because I come from a business world and you start looking at the publishing industry in all of its opacity. And you're like, how does anything actually get done? Um, because like you said, they're all guessing and it's really not much more scientific than that when you start peeling, <laughs> peeling away the, the layers and you're like, oh, okay, they just don't know. And they think like, okay, you know, best case scenario is 10,000 copies with X novel. And is that enough to break even? Is that, you know, whatever. But you also realize like, you know, they don't look at everything that it's going to be a bestseller. You know, they, you know, a lot of publishing houses are are thrive on their mid-list authors who just produce um so but it's it's frustrating as an author because you don't know what what you don't want to hear when you're getting those rejections is like the writing wasn't good you don't want to hear that you don't want to hear that in fact i mean i gotta say i was happy with a lot of these rejections i took them as just real compliments you know i thought Wow, if I'm if you know if some top editor at some top press thinks that what I'm doing is worthwhile, then uh, you know that's that, that that's a it's a it's a delightful surprise. Oh no, it's it's just weird that some New York editors actually reading your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they did. They took it seriously. So you know. yeah. Well, that's because you have a reputable agent, and that's the power of the agency is is that they will get you in those doors. That's right. Yeah. It may be that the harder thing to do is to get is to get the good agent. Yeah. Or to get any agent. <laughs> like is, is, you know, I think my agent told me not too long ago that she's just an independent agent. I've been with her for 20 years that she gets um, you know, 20 to 30 queries a day and she takes on one author per year, typically. And I'm like, Jesus, those are good odds for, for, for anybody. It's a rejection uh, business. The whole business is a rejection business. Right. It is. And, and the key to it as an author, one of the keys is to is to embrace that rejection and to be curious about it and to study it. Like you were saying with your letters, 
like, okay, not only is it a compliment, but you know, sometimes they tell you why it's not the right fit for them. And maybe it's just, they're just pursuing, they're not pursuing that specific brand of whatever you're writing at the time. But sometimes it's like, you know, your hero wasn't quite strong enough for us. And if you start seeing a lot of those same comments, you know, that's tremendous, you know, that's gold for the writer to, to have these top editors giving you advice. It's a free course. Yeah. On the other hand, I'd also get, you know, the pace is a little too slow or I wish you would really slow down the pace and we could kind of, you know, uh, get to know these characters a little bit more. Um, you know, too many, too many POVs, um, more POVs. Uh, a lot of times the, the, you know, the feedback was, uh, was, you know, contradictory. And in that way, just a reminder that these are people, these are, you know, these are people with their own opinions and, um, you know, you, you find what's useful in the feedback, uh, but not all of it's going to be. Totally. And, 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 and the end result of that is you want that editor who not only sees your, your book as a viable business interest, but is passionate and is a champion for your book. Um, and I know that sounds like a very obvious thing to say to the listeners, but the reality of it is some books get taken on that are just like, yeah, this rounds out this catalog, but you get largely ignored as, as an author. And as an author, it's very hard to say, like, well, I don't feel like you're championing my book enough, so I'm not going to go with you. <laughs> you kind of just jump at any opportunity, but you really do want that passion. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so so Disorderly Men is uh, the first work of original fiction by uh, Forward and Press. Uh, oh. And that, and that told me that they were going to be excited about it. They were going to, you know, you know, really be committed to it. Uh, you know, that they understood that it had to be sold a little differently than, uh, you know, a scholarly book, a lot, you know, a lot differently. Um, and, uh, you know, and I got the same enthusiasm um, from my wonderful agent, um, uh, Pamela Malpas. Um, she, you know, she, she just, she just, just made it clear that she loved the character. She loved the story. She loved my writing. And, um, uh, you know, I still get goosebumps when I think about that that kind of support, but it uh, it re- really does make all the difference because it's a long slog, and uh, it's not always uh, you know a remunerative slog. Uh, you know, no. for the, for the- it's, it's quite often not. It is quite often not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the reality of of the industry, which is why you know if you're pursuing fiction writing, you're doing so out of out of love and passion and joy, and and. Not saying I'm quitting my day job because this is going to make me a million dollars. You, I mean, to go in with eyes wide open is is the best advice you can get. And also, like you know, it's interesting in your case where with a publisher, this is their first work of fiction. You know, they have to they have to do things differently now in terms of marketing the book, and that also means you have to step up as the author. And I mean, the author does anyway, regardless of if you're with the big five or not. And you have to really make a presence for yourself, which is not something everyone's comfortable doing. No, it's very different from writing, right? You know, writing is very solitary and um, uh, and very kind of insular. Uh, and I'm really comfortable um, doing that. And me too. <laughs> you know, right now I'm just pretending to be a really gregarious person who loves, uh, you know, being interviewed. Um, <laughs> you done well. But I've had to, I've had to kind of, yeah, you know, step up as we say and, um, and, and sell, you know, and, and, and not just to sell the book, but to sell the ideas, you know, to sell the history, um, sell you to sell me and, you know, to be a storyteller, uh, you know, a 
you know, a public storyteller. I never thought I would enjoy doing the book readings as much as I did. No. Um, I found it was really just kind of like teaching in the classroom. You okay. know, I, I've got a bunch of students here. They're all there. They seem interested. I start talking. Pretty soon a conversation happens. And that's what I do. That's what I do every day. Yeah. And that's because you have that experience as a teacher. You, I mean, you know the basics of <laughs> the public speaking and being in front of an audience and conveying a message. And that's, you know, that does sound very fundamental, but that most authors don't have that. And that's one of the things I teach, for example, when I'm teaching writing, I teach public speaking as well, because I'm like, you, your, your job doesn't end when you finish the story. You are, you are part of this team, just as you would be in any other business that you have to sell the book and having a presence is, is a big part of that. And that's a real struggle uh, for a lot of people. So it's a matter of being a presence and also knowing what you're good at and what you're comfortable with and then staying away from the stuff that you're terrible at because it'll show. I did not try any TikTok videos. Actually, well, I did. I tried to make one. It was really lousy. And I decided I was never going back there again. So. <laughs> yeah, well, a clip of this will be on TikTok eventually, because that's uh, most of my TikTok be is clips of this show where people can learn. That will be my, that will be my, my, <laughs> your foray into TikTok. Yeah. But yeah, and you don't have to do TikTok. You don't have to, you know, but it is a mad, but it's so interesting nowadays because I'm, I can guarantee you when you're, you, when your agent was shopping your book editors were Googling your name. They wanted to see what kind of presence Edward Gale has. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy and, and you have to keep it up and it's, and it's not cheap either. So, uh, <laughs> that that's the journey you have ahead of you is becoming a social media champion. Well, you know, um, I'm, I'm about a hundred pages into my next novel, really, really excited about it and kind of frustrated when I have to put it aside to do two hours media every day, but I have to do it because that's the job. And, uh, and I want readers for the first book. Um, but yeah, you, you, it's a, it's a different kind of work and, and it's a little bit of a trade-off. Yeah, totally. And also getting involved in the community that's relevant to whatever it is you're writing, you know, yeah. going to conferences and seminars and doing panels and things like that, where you're getting known uh, amongst your peers and not just your readers. And I, that, that begets so many things down the road. Once you have that community. Um, on Sunday, I'll be at the Brooklyn book fair, um, uh, signing copies of disorderly men, uh, and hopefully meeting new readers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and your, your recent travels were, uh, were successful. Yeah. I mean, really, really just so much fun. I was at, um, uh, Fabulosa books uh, in San Francisco and Chevalier's books in Los Angeles. Um, and I was uh, at um, uh, the center, um, the Bureau of General Services Queer Division Bookstore uh, at the center on 13th Street uh, in Manhattan. Um, standing room only crowd. Uh, wow. Time. Really, really, really great time. Yeah. That's great. Wait, but you'll really cut your teeth with the uh, with non-standing room only crowds when there's like there's three people there or less. <laughs> and, and then you're like, okay, just I got to switch into this mode and I don't, you know. Yeah. Well, the, the turnout in Los Angeles wasn't quite as good. So that was, uh, I've, you know, I've, I've heard the horror stories. Um, I don't think I quite experienced the horror, but it was definitely a smaller crowd and had to play that a little differently. My, my publisher flew me to Houston to do a signing at Murder by the Book, and it was promoted for weeks and zero people showed up. There wasn't even there wasn't even anyone randomly in the bookstore looking at books. And so I, I just talked to the owner for like half an hour. And I'm like, I'm going to go get dinner now. <laughs> 
But now I've got that story. Right, now you've got the story. <laughs> Walk out of there with your head held high. Well, listen, Ed, we're going to wrap up soon. But before we do, we're, we are going to do our storytelling part of the show. Uh, right. I've, I've chosen three books, mostly at random from my bookshelves. Um, I'm going to have you pick one of those books. and We're going to choose a random page and a random sentence. I will read that sentence. And then that will be the first sentence and maybe a two-minute long short story. So I'll read the sentence. You give me the next couple sentences of what happens. I'll do a couple. And then it'll be a complete disaster. And then I will kill it eventually. Um, So I have uh, uh, John Jakes, the bastard. I got really into John Jakes living in San Francisco, reading in my 20s. I mean, that's when I discovered John Jakes. Uh, Grisham's uh, Rainmaker. And uh, a book fully written in the second person. Then we came to the end. I think you had me with the bastard. <laughs> so choose a, a, a oh, geez, I forgot how long this was. Choose a page between one and 600. Um, well, let's make it 300 then. Okay. You are precise, aren't you? Um, I will quickly look and just see, um, if there's a sentence that might work. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. I'm just going to read this and then this can go wherever the hell we want it to go. Um, Caleb gestured to the other chair, then to a platter of biscuits. He thought about eating one, but then decided it might be rude. So he waited and he waited and he waited, but she sat there staring at him, saying nothing. It was then that the smallest seed of doubt, the smallest seed of could even be hate, started to creep into his mind. Why wasn't she eating the biscuits? She had made them after all, and she was so insistent that he have one first. He'd known her all his life. And he knew that if he were to take the biscuit and eat it, that she would win. So instead he reached for a cup of tea and he drank the entire cup of tea in a single gulp. It took about two minutes for him to realize he had made a terrible, terrible decision. Avoiding the biscuits and going for the tea seemed reasonable until he started to feel flush in his cheeks and a little bit dizzy. And suddenly there was a small pain in his chest, near his heart. It was the inheritance, he knew at that moment, the inheritance. They were the only two heirs left. They had discussed an equal division of the property. It was clear in the will that he would have half of the estate. But as his stomach began to churn and churn, and he felt his very insides dissolving. He knew that he ought to have eaten that biscuit. The teacup fell from his hand, shattered on the floor. She was so cool, she just looked at the broken shards of porcelain and said, that was supposed to be my teacup. We'll call it there. (laughs) Very, Very nice. It immediately goes to murder. I don't know why. That's what usually happens. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm a thriller. <laughs> but there's usually death imminent in, in, in these two-minute-long short stories. 
Well, I think if there hadn't been some death, then the teacup and the biscuits might have gotten a little boring. So, <laughs> the last thing you want is boring biscuits. Well, listen, Ed, what a pleasure talking to you, and I and I'm excited for for your recent release, and congratulations! It's such a yeah, and you seem to have that healthy perspective of being able to look back and be like, damn, that actually happened. <laughs> it actually, like, because it really doesn't happen for for the the vast majority of writers. So to have, to be able to look back, you know, even though you're continuing forward, but be able to look back and have that gratitude um, and have that perspective, I think is is so important for authors. I think it's exactly right. I feel so grateful. And I think, you know, anyone who can get pleasure out of writing can have access to that gratitude because it really is, it's a cliche, but it is its own reward. And if you're going to, if you're going to pursue it, you know, um, that pleasure really has to be the most important thing. It a, and it was a real pleasure to meet you, Carter. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful. Talk to you soon. I hope to meet you in person someday. Me too. Take care. Take care, Ed. Bye. So that's it. That is my conversation with uh, Edward Cahill. He was fantastic. And I liked uh, I liked our little story at the end there. It might have been a little bit on the nose. Um, but, you know, I, I, I always am partial to a good story about poisoning. Um, it's just my nature. If you want to write, find out everything you can uh, about Ed, uh, please go to his website. It's just edwardcahill.net. There you can read about him, buy his books, um, find his social media connections, all that good stuff. And if you want to find out more about me, just hop on over to my website, carterwilson.com. And I will say, I just, I just had the website refreshed to reflect my upcoming novel. So it's, uh, it's bitchin'. It is a very bitchin' website right now. Shout out to Zuni, uh, who does tremendous work. I think I've been with Zuni uh, for, geez, over 12 years now. So good stuff. Uh, that is it for now. There are more episodes of Making It Up Soon out, coming out, and uh, there will be one out next week. And in the meantime, thanks, as always, for watching and or listening. Take care. <laughs>